the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized in 2012 as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, today accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. It's Memorial Day weekend, and Memorial Day is a time to remember the people that gave their lives in defense of this country. Now, it was started a little over 150 years ago by General Black Jack Logan, who was a Civil War general, very capable political general. And after the war, he was a Republican congressman, and he started the idea of putting flags on the graves of Civil War veterans, which was known at the time as Decoration Day, and eventually came Memorial Day to honor all the honored dead who gave their lives in service of the United States. And Black Jack Logan was a a very famous politician of the 19th century. He ran for vice president in 1884, didn't quite make it, but interesting congressman. And we, we actually, one time we talked about Black Jack Logan with uh, Ed Bars, and Black Jack Logan defended Tom Sweeney in the 1860s when he was being charged with uh, treason for invading Canada. Well, a member of the United States military. <laughs> well, that's another story. <laughs> yes. But in any event, Memorial Day is, is here to honor our you know fallen heroes. And we have two guests today, which I, I think appropriately represent the spirit of Memorial Day. One, we have Denise Van Buren, President General of the Daughters of the American Revolution. And of course, there were a lot of, you know, mostly men, obviously, who gave their lives during the American Revolution. And and the DAR honors them and all the people who served on the Patriot side during the uh, the American Revolution. And, you know, I think we forget a lot about the, the sacrifices. And I think we take it for granted sometimes that the Americans were going to win the American Revolution. You know, it was, it was, you know, when you think about the odds, it was incredible that they did win. Back then, King George III was probably more merciful than most monarchs of, of the time, but still, George Washington probably would have been executed, and a lot of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, if the colonies had lost the campaign. Because remember, it was just a few years earlier, in the 1750s, that different people were executed. Um, and, and even in 1916 in Ireland, the leaders of the, the revolution were executed. So you have to assume that they would have been executed. But many of them were men of wealth who made an extreme sacrifice for what they believed in. And well, they thought they would, they, the possibility would be, you know, we'll all hang together. Right. That's the... Right. So 
Daughters of the American Revolution, keeping the memory of our founding fathers alive. And then we have one of those great stories about U.S. Army Air Corps personnel who were shot down over Belgium during World War II. Some survived, some died. And Steve Snyder is writing about his father. His father was the pilot, Howard Snyder. Okay, now, ordinarily we start the show about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally. Avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. Of course, right now, we don't have to worry about going in the court because the courts are closed, which makes it even worse. And as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. You know, each week, Kevin McCullough takes a question from our Gmail account, and he asks that question on his radio show Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer. He has an extended hour on Wednesdays because of John Katzmatidis, and also on 570 The Mission, Monday through Friday at 570 The Mission. Take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you'll get a question answered by Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan, the experts and the only people I recommend when it comes to estate uh, law and elder care. And uh, Mike Connors is back with us. And Mike, I know that there have been several questions raised by people who have had a relative die through the COVID-19 crisis, and they've had a bit of a hard time getting a death certificate. And there's all sorts of other things related to that uh, accounting process that I've covered on the show. But from the from the process of how it works for the families, what are you running into? Well, I mean, there, there's so many things. First of all, the impact of all the people that we know that, that passed away is, you know, numbing, to, to put it mildly. But it's, it's the legal system is closed down, too. I mean, there's some orders getting signed here and there. But for the most part, the surrogate's court is closed down in the city. So that if if somebody died, one, it takes forever to get a death certificate because the funeral directors and the Department of Health are all backed up. It's just the way things are. And number two, let's say if you need an emergency order or something to try to find a will, open up a safe deposit box, everything is shut down. So everybody's in limbo. And, you know, it, it has an impact on the economy, too, because money's tied up. People could use the money, obviously, in their inheritance and spend it. But we can't start doing our job because the courts are closed. So hoping for uh, a sooner opening would be a good thing for all of those involved. Right. I mean, it's bad enough somebody died, but all right, so we've got the money tied up. I think it would be a good idea if we could try to get that money back into the economy. Yeah. Friends, maybe you've had just such troubles. If you're looking for help uh, with getting those legal questions resolved, Connors and Sullivan are the only ones I recommend. 718-238-6500. You can get your questions answered here on Kevin McCullough Radio or Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570, The Mission, and FM 102.3, also Saturday evenings at 6, and then Sunday mornings at 11. On AM 970, The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Mike Connors, host of Ask the Lawyer and published in New York Magazine's Top Rated Lawyers. Whether assisting a client with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, nursing home plan, or other matter, Connors and Sullivan's goal is always the protection of their clients' rights and interests. Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, has dedicated attorneys that can help you with estate planning, elder law, and probate. They listen to their clients to learn about their families, their financial picture, and their long-term goals to create a comprehensive plan to meet your objectives. They assist with the complex tax matters that are often involved in estate planning and probate. Contact Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, with offices in Brooklyn, Queens, Midtown Manhattan, and Staten Island to schedule a free consultation with an attorney. 
attorney. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. And listen to Ask the Lawyer right here every Saturday evening at 6. Thank you, Kevin. Beth, do you have a question? I do. Hello. I own a two-family home that is in trust. Am I required to place money collected for rent in a trust bank account? Thanks, Mildred. No, not ordinarily. Most of the trusts we do are what we call grantor trust, and the income is paid by the grantor, which 95% of the time is the parent. So the parent collects the rent on a rental property in the trust, whether it's a one or two family or whether it's a 10 family. Parent come incapacitated or they pass away, which happens to all of us. So the idea behind a trust, let's say if you have a one or two family house, is to protect it from medical bills, avoid probate, and it goes out ordinarily tax-free you know, to the children. What do I mean by tax-free? Well, right now in New York State, we can get $5,850,000 out tax-free, and that's $5,850,000 for husband, $5,850,000 for wife. So that's basically almost $12 million we can go get out tax-free. So that covers, you know, a lot of people out there. There's no one size that fits all, but that fits a lot of people under $12 million. So if, if you want to talk about a trust, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan. We're not open for business in the regular manner, but yes, you can talk to us through Zoom. You can start the conversation with a regular phone call, and then we can talk, and we can execute documents through Zoom, Skype, other remote ways. And it's, it's a lot easier than you think once you get going. Now, we're going to take a short break. After the break, we're going to get on with Denise Van Buren from the Daughters of the American Revolution. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for a free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. The Daughters of the American Revolution. It's an organization that I, I think there's a little bit of confusion or a lot of confusion about, but to help learn more about the Daughters of the American Revolution, we have Denise Van Buren, the President General of the organization. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you so very much. I'm just delighted to have an opportunity to talk about all the great things that DAR is involved with. What, first, what is the DAR and how do you join the DAR? Sure. Uh, DAR is a service organization, and we are all descended from patriots who won American independence. So it's a lineal society. You uh, trace your lineage back to someone who was here and served on the American side uh, during our conflict with Great Britain. And uh, we have about 185,000 women who are members, primarily based in the United States, but we actually have uh, 21 units overseas. We call them chapters overseas, women who are uh, working in our goals to celebrate America and American citizenship. Now, how do you prove that you're a descendant from an American patriot of the Revolutionary War? 
Sure. Well, uh, we're certainly doing a lot of exciting things with DNA. Those are involving, evolving, but for the most part, it's done through traditional documentary sources, such as birth certificates, marriage certificates, death certificates, obituaries, tombstones, uh, Bible records, uh, church records, all sorts of vital records that are found in repositories. So uh, we do ask the applicants to get us at least the most three recent generations, and then earlier than that, we are often able to help them. If they believe they have a line that extends back as as early as the 1700s, we're here to help. We've got researchers available to assist them, and, and it's an exciting prospect to help women discover their connection to American history. Now, how did the DAR get established? Well, there was it was part of a movement um, that grew out of actually the the country's centennial in 1876. There's this reawakening of an interest in the country's founding, and lineal societies in general began to form um, post the the exposition that was held to celebrate the centennial. And in 1894, women in Washington D.C. come together and form the Daughters of the American Revolution. Our aims have not changed since that original October of 1890 meeting. Our goal is to perpetuate the memory and the spirit of the men and women who achieved American independence and also to carry forward Washington's call that we have an engaged and an educated citizenry. All right. Now, what, what is the DAR doing today? What kind of activities are you involved in? Well, I like to tell folks that we have something for everyone in today's DAR. We have more than 40 active committees. For example, you can be involved in a committee that helps to sponsor naturalization services for uh, people who are joining the United States as a citizen. We also have a conservation committee, and for example, we're working there on uh, plastics, uh, you know, reducing plastic use. We have committees that help you to celebrate the flag of the United States of America, to honor our veterans, also to support active duty service personnel. There is truly something for everyone who loves America and wants to support our democracy within a republic here. So what do you do to honor the flags or the history of the flags? Well, we do things such as uh, present flags so that they can be flown in, in public places. So if you have a, flag, a need for a flag, contact your local DAR chapter, or we um, distribute flag literature so that people know how to properly display and respect the symbol of our nation. And we take every opportunity we can to talk about the importance of honoring our flag and, and treating it with respect. And for veterans, what are you doing for veterans? DAR members across the country are amongst the largest volunteer group at our VA medical center, so we're very active within the VA itself. But aside from that, we seize every opportunity we can to thank the men and women who have worn the uniform of our nation. And we are recognized, for example, as one of the most vibrant partners that the National Department of Defense has right now, and that is to recognize Vietnam veterans. Uh, As you know, when these men and women came home from their service, uh, they oftentimes didn't receive any type of a thank you or recognition, and we are cooperating all across the country to identify Vietnam veterans, to work with the Department of Defense to get them a certificate and a lapel pin, to bring them to an event, and to thank them for their service, what they did in Vietnam. We're also very active participants with Honor Flight. Uh, program throughout communities all across America, and we're very active with reeds across America. Our ladies sponsor the the placement of reeds and cemeteries for veterans' graves all around the country. It's, it's something that we really feel passionate about, is supporting those who have sacrificed so much that freedom might be ours. And what kind of educational programs do you have? We provide approximately $2 million in 
scholarships annually. That, that's a very visible thing. But, you know, the other kind of projects that we're involved with are more grassroots. We've sponsored an American history essay contest since the 1930s. It's very popular. I mean, many people tell me they won in the sixth grade or they won in the seventh grade. We also support schools. I've actually just returned from a tour of our five DAR-supported schools that are in the American South in communities in Appalachia where there were no schools when the DAR ladies went in there in the 1920s and gave them their first opportunities for formal education. We're still operating those schools and improving outcomes for thousands of lives uh, of citizens now as they grow up um, in the American South. So lots of ways, big and small. We have a community classroom committee that enables you to be able to go out to our, uh, your community and support teachers if they might need supplies. We help them raise money for that or any type of educational need they might have in a local community classroom level. So again, as I mentioned earlier, something for everyone in DAR. If you'd like to support education, we have wonderful avenues that afford you the ability to do that. Now, you know, we're talking, we're coming very close to the 100th anniversary of the right of women to vote in U.S. elections. Was the DAR active in that movement? We were, and that's an excellent question. Many of our members were very active. We're very proud of the fact, for example, that Susan B. Anthony was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, as was Alice Paul, perhaps a lesser known but a critical component of the success of the movement uh, to gain the right to vote for women. So we have long been involved with that, um, and we're we're very proud of D.A.R.'s involvement, uh, particularly the individuals who also were members of what was then a progressive movement for women. These were women who demanded the right to vote. They were out there working, for example, to improve outcomes through educational movements, through uh, prohibition, um, through uh, child labor laws. They were doing progressive things in their communities, and they said that they, too, should have the right to vote. And we're proud that our members were among them. All right. Now, most of our listeners are in the New York City area. What, What kind of activities are occurring within the New York City or the metropolitan area? Sure. We have a number of very vibrant chapters in New York City. In fact, the New York City chapter itself was the second one formed nationwide back in the early 1890s. But they carry forward to today to several that are uh, for younger working women. We have a Knickerbocker chapter that's comprised of really vibrant, exciting women. And I'll I'll just uh, choose them. One project that they've recently completed involves helping to reforest the oyster beds and the waterways around New York City as part of the ecology system there. Uh, The ladies have really... uh, embrace that as, as a project. And that's just one example of the many things they do. Um, I'm so proud, really. They, they marched, they were participating in uh, breast cancer awareness walks during the month of October and doing many other things that demonstrate the relevancy and the vibrancy of being involved in DAR. We are a service organization when all is said and done. Now, if somebody out there is, is interested in joining the DAR, what, where should they look? Website, call? Yeah, you're good. Thank you for all these great opportunities. They, they can visit us at www.dar.org, and it'll tell you a little bit more about who we are and what we do. That's our national website. And there's a whole section there on how to become a member. And once you click into that and you go to that page, you'll see an opportunity to input your zip code and find out chapters near you. And I recommend to ladies, if there are multiple ones in a place like New York City and you want to visit with a couple of them to find a good fit for you, because um, each chapter has its own personality some 
for example, meet. I think the Manhattan chapter continues to meet in the in the daytime, in the middle of the week. That might not work for a, a working woman today. And so we have other alternatives like that Knickerbocker chapter, which typically eats meets in the evening after work. So uh, all you have to do is just input some information, uh, fill out a, a brief form that's there, and one of our volunteers will be delighted to connect with you in order to help you get started on, on your journey through American history and hopefully right to the DAR. And, and why do you think somebody should join the DAR? What's the attraction? What, what is, you know, a lot of people, sure. what's in it for me? I know it. Um, and isn't that the way of life today, right? I think there are amazing things in it. The value proposition is that you have a sense of fulfillment as a citizen that you will find nowhere else, in my opinion. Um, I'm a very proud mother of three terrific sons, one of whom's in the United States military as we speak. Um, I'm a professional person who has had a wonderful 26-year career at a publicly traded company as an executive officer for two decades. And I find a lot of fulfillment in those roles. I have a wonderful husband, a happy home life. But the truth is, as a citizen of the United States of America, in DAR, I find an outlet to express my love of country. And I hear that from thousands upon thousands upon thousands of women. We have been singularly committed to historic preservation, education, and patriotism since our founding. And as a result, if those areas interest you, we offer you an opportunity as a citizen to give back to your country and to your community in the most meaningful way that will really make you feel as though you've made a meaningful difference. Denise Van Buren, thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you for telling us about the Daughters of the American Revolution. Thank you for what you guys do for the country. All right. Thank you so much. I'm appreciative for an opportunity to tell your listeners a little bit more about who we are and what we do. So all the best, sir. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. BQ.org. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest is author Steve Snyder. He has a book out about his father. The name of the book is Shot Down, the true story of pilot Howard Snyder and the crew of the B-17 Susan Ruth. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing great, Mike. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on your show. Okay, so what is the story? Your, your father was a pilot in World War II. What happened to him? Correct. He was a, a B-17 uh, bomber pilot uh, during World War II. He was with the 306th uh, bomb group stationed at Thurlie, England. He arrived there in October of 43. And on February 8th of 1944, his plane was shot down. It was a mission to Frankfurt, Germany, where they dropped their bombs successfully. But their Bombay doors got hit by anti-aircraft fire, uh, flak, it was called. And they couldn't get the doors back up. And as a result, that caused a drag on the plane. They lost airspeed. And they started lagging behind the bomber formation, uh, heading back to England to their bases. And they were singled out by two German Focke-Wolf fighters who came in for the, the kill. And in the ensuing air battle, the Susan Ruth, which was named after my oldest sister, who was one year old at the time that my dad went overseas, 
Uh, it was shot down. Uh, B-17 had a 10-man crew. Two of the crew were killed in the plane. The other eight bailed out, and the book goes into detail about what happened to each member of the crew and about all the Belgian people that risked their lives trying to help them. Let's just go back a second. How, how were the, the planes named back then? Well, my dad was the pilot, and as such, he was the commander of the crew and the plane. So the pilot always had the last say on what the plane would be named, but usually he would talk it over with his uh, his crew uh, to get agreement. Of the 10 men in my dad's crew, only three were married, and my dad was the only one that had a child. So uh, my dad was older, too. Most of the, uh, the crewmen on the uh, B-17 bomber, the gunners were usually in their teens, 18, 19. Uh, the officers, there were four officers uh, on a B-17. They were typically in their early 20s. My dad was an old guy, though. He was 28, so they would call him uh, Grandpa, the old man. So uh, <laughs> I guess they uh, had a little re- more respect for him as well. So uh, that's how the names are, were uh the planes were named and, uh, and and painted. It's interesting that the Air Force is the only entity that allowed their planes to be named and painted. The Navy didn't, the uh, Marines didn't, or that other countries, but the Air Force thought that it would help the morale of these young guys if they could personalize their planes and name and paint them. Okay, well, that's interesting. I learned something already. Now, this is February 1944, so D-Day hasn't happened yet. It won't happen for a few more months. So there, there are not a lot of Allied troops in Europe then. So what happens? They get shot down. Yeah, they're, uh, they're, yeah. Uh, Belgium, as well as uh, all of Western Europe, was occupied by uh, the Nazis at that time. So there weren't any uh, Allied uh, forces, military forces on the ground which was very tough on those on those countries. Typically, when uh, airmen bailed out, and they were picked up by the underground. Uh, they tried to get the airmen back to England through various escape routes, uh, down through France, uh, over the Pyrenees into Spain, and then out through British-controlled Gibraltar. Uh, and quite a few airmen that were uh, shot down were able to get out that way. The most famous uh, escape route was called the Comet Line. But something always went wrong uh, trying to get my dad out. And uh, they were either compromised by uh, German uh, infiltrators or uh, various reasons. And my dad, he was missing in action for seven months, but he evaded capture that whole time. He was hidden by a number of Belgian people during that time. He was moved from place to place to place. He might spend one night at one house or six weeks at another house. It all depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. And the people who hid my dad or any downed airman for that matter were unbelievably brave people. They risked not only their lives, but uh, the lives of their friends and family by aiding down airmen because of the German secret police, the Gestapo, found out they would be arrested, tortured, and either sent to a concentration camp or shot. And some of the people who helped my dad and his crew did meet that fate. All right, so you, you, your father's missing in action as far as the official records go for seven months, and he was going place to place. It was a town to town or... Yeah, he went to various towns. Uh, it was right, they were shot down right at the French-Belgian border. In fact, my dad and the plane 
uh, they came down in Belgium, but the other guys that were able to bail out on his crew came down in France. So it was right at the border. Uh, my dad came down the little village of Mackenois, Belgium, which is in and around uh, Montmagny-Chimay. He was in Charleroi for a while, but it was all uh, southern Belgium. All right, so he's on the run. What's happening? Well, um, he was almost discovered uh, several times by the Gestapo, and there's uh, those uh, instances are described in, in, in the book. And finally, my dad got tired of hiding. Uh, it was also awful stressful for him. Uh, after all, his plane was attacked by German fighters. It's on fire. He has to bail out. Uh, comes down in a foreign country, has no idea where he is, doesn't know what happened to his uh, buddies on the crew. I can't communicate with the U.S. military, and he's being helped by complete strangers, and they couldn't communicate uh, at the beginning because he couldn't speak French. They can't speak English, but he had a little French-English dictionary he could refer to, and any one of these people could be a Belgium collaborator and turn him over to the Gestapo. So finally, uh, he he got tired of hiding. Uh, Like he mentioned, uh, D-Day occurred on June 6th of 44. Uh, he word came that the Allies had landed at Normandy, and he wanted to get back and into the fight. And under, unlike most airmen, before he went into the Air Force, he was in the, the Army uh, up in the state of Washington for a year in the infantry, so he knew how to fight on the ground. And he wanted to get back in the fight, so he decided to join up with the French resistance called the Mackey. The people who were hiding him at the time strongly tried to talk him out of that because it was just so dangerous. He could die, you know, in the fighting against the Germans. And if the Germans had captured him, he would have been shot on the spot as a as a terrorist. But he felt it was his duty to uh, get back in and uh, do his job and uh, fight against the Germans. So he he fought against he fought with the French resistance. They uh, harassed the Germans. They would sabotage railroad lines, disrupt communications, assassinate German officers, attack German convoys. And there's a number of instances that the, the group had uh, encounters with, with the Germans. His group was made up of about 20 guys led by a French lieutenant who had escaped from a German prisoner of war camp. So there's not many guys that <laughs> no. would have the the, 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 the bravery and the, and the courage to do that. I, I, I doubt if I would, because he could have just stayed in hiding and, you know, hunkered down until the U.S. armies came up uh, through France after D-Day and liberated the area. But his, he risked his life to uh, to fight against the, the, the Germans. So eventually what happens? He's fighting with resistance. What What's the next thing that goes on? Uh, then on uh, September 2nd, uh, word uh, filtered through to the group that there were ally, uh, U.S. troops in the uh, little nearby village of Trelon, France, which was just across the Belgian border. So he walked into town, uh, into the town square, went up to an uh, army major, actually was an element of Patton's Third Army, which had come up through France after D-Day, and identified himself. Uh, they interrogated him to make sure that he was who he said he was. And then he... Uh, Hitched a ride on a, a convoy uh, taking German prisoners to Paris, and then from Paris he uh, hopped on a transport C-47 and made it back uh, to England, where he sent a letter to my telegra- uh, telegram, not a letter, a telegram, Western Union telegram to my to my mother, 
saying he was fit as a fiddle and to bank the money, honey. He had all that back pay from being missing, missing in action. <laughs> and that was really tough on my mom because not only did she have uh, Susan Ruth, who was one year old, but my other sister was born when my dad was missing in action. So she was back home with two little baby girls, uh, not, not knowing if she'd ever see her husband again. So that was really tough on her. I can't, I, I can't even imagine that. Now, there were other members of the crew. What happened to them? Well, five of the ten-man crew made it home. Five of them did not. Uh, I mentioned two were killed in the plane uh, when it was attacked by the German fighters. The other eight bailed out. Three of them, they were picked up immediately by the Germans and became prisoners of war. Uh, Two of them uh, were eventually repatriated back to the U.S. before the war ended because they had such serious wounds and injuries. Um, that was Joe Musial and uh, Richard Daniels. And then Roy Holbert, the flight engineer, he spent the entire uh, remainder of the war as a, as a POW. And then uh, there was another, uh, the tail gunner, uh, Bill Schlenker, he also evaded capture. Uh, he, he wasn't uh, with my dad at all. In fact, after my dad bailed out, he had no idea what happened to any of the other members of the crew until he got back to England. But uh, Bill Schlenker, he also uh, evaded capture. And unlike my dad, uh, he was hidden by one uh, woman and her two daughters the entire seven months. He never moved at all. And then there was three other uh, uh, members of the crew, George Ike, Robert Benninger, and John Pindrock, who uh, uh, was evaded capture for a little while. They hooked up with... Uh, five uh, U.S. airmen from three other B-17s that had been shot down. There was eight of them hiding in the woods uh, near Chimay, Belgium, in a little hut that uh, some underground members helped them build. And they were waiting to get uh, out you know, through these various escape routes. Um, but uh, they were waiting and waiting, but before they could get out, a Belgium collaborator told the Germans about them hiding there. And on April 22nd, of 1944, uh, about 1,500 German police, uh, Gestapo, uh, members of the military uh, surrounded their hut, arrested them, took them into town to a, a schoolhouse, interrogated it, and took the eight men back out in the woods, and they shot all eight of them. Uh -huh. well, what so, was their you know, legal grounds? on that were they were, were in civilian uniforms what was the yeah they were in civilian uniforms uh a couple of guys still had uh some of their uh air gear on uh but they did find uh a couple of guns in in this hut and they deemed them terrorists and even though it was against the geneva convention uh shooting them they 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 murdered all all eight men and also two uh, young Belgium uh, men who were in their early 20s and who were helping them were arrested as well, and they were sent to concentration camps and never heard from again. How did you find out about this? Uh, wh what were the sources? Oh, I am so fortunate, so blessed to know so much about my dad and, and, and his crew, because I go all over the United States uh, attending air shows, 
signing copies of my book and going and making uh, PowerPoint presentations to all sorts of groups. And I constantly hear and, are t- and I'm told by people that they know so little about their World War II veteran because they never talked about it. Right. Um, and my dad didn't talk about it uh, much until 1989 when uh, a memorial was erected in Mackinac, Belgium, to my dad and his crew, and he and the three other crew members that were still living at the time went over for the dedication of the memorial, and there he was reunited with all these Belgian people that hit him, revisited these places where he was hidden, and that brought it all back, and he started talking about it. And then five years later, in 1994, my wife and I accompanied my parents to Belgium for the 50th anniversary of the Belgium liberation of my dad's plane being shot down. And that's when it became personal for me because I saw these things firsthand. So the story of my, uh, is all based on firsthand testimony by people who were involved in the events that took place, either members of my dad's crew who, who made it through the war. I probably wouldn't have written in a book though, if it wasn't for two Belgium gentlemen, Dr. Paul Delahaye and Jacques Lalot who were young boys during the war, and they were greatly affected by it. They saw firsthand uh, atrocities committed by the Nazis against their friends and family. And later in life, they became local historians. They interviewed all these Belgian people and were members of the Belgium underground about events that took place involving my dad and his crew. And they documented their testimony, and they gave me unbelievably detailed information about events that took place that have been lost forever without their research. So I owe them a a huge debt. And not only did they give me all this information, but they sent me all these pictures taken by Belgian people. Also, some of my dad's helpers had sent uh, him pictures that they had taken. There's over 200 time period photographs in the book, so you can visualize everything you're reading about. So I was just so fortunate to have all this detailed documented information And then uh, one of the most exciting things that happened during all my research was finding the German Luftwaffe pilot that shot down my dad's plane and interviewing him for the book. And he gave me some wonderful information about what it was like to go up against the 8th Air Force during the war. Um, That's in the book. So how did you you find him out? That was one of my main questions in my mind. How did you find out this Luftwaffe pilot? Well, that, that's a good story, too. You know, all my dad knew and all the U.S. military knew is that the plane was shot down by two German fighters, and that's uh, all I thought I'd ever know. But uh, one day when I was doing my research, my wife said, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot him down? Um, which I thought was a ridiculous idea. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. It'd be impossible. But like a good husband, I did what she told me to do. And lo and behold, I found found him. His, his name is Hans Berger, and he's the only person involved in the shot down story that's still living. Uh, Hans is 96 years old. He lives in Munich, Germany. I've been over there a couple times, uh, and we've become friends. And fortunately for me, he became a translator after the war, so he speaks perfect English. What, what did he tell you? I mean, this is, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, um, well, he was he was surprised when I contacted him. Um, and I just started, for the book, I just interviewed him uh, over the telephone and, and uh, through email. But as I mentioned, in 2016 and 2019, I went and visited him uh, in, in person. 
And uh, I just start bombarding him with questions. One day he said, Steve, you know, you're asking me all these personal questions and I really don't even know you. But uh, I built up his trust. And as I, I said, we became good friends. He said it was uh, unfortunate they had to be shooting at each other, but that was that was war. Uh, he was pretty much just like the U.S. airman. He was a young guy, 20 years old. You know, uh, fighting for his country, trying to do a job, and 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 trying to stay alive. He was shot down three times, but he made it through the war. And in fact, the gunners on my dad's plane shot Hans down at the same time he shot my dad's plane down. So they shot each other down. Now, how did he recognize the plane? How did he remember the name? Well, he didn't recognize the plane or the name. You know, all he knew that. Uh, over southern Belgium there that on February 8th, and he pull, pulled out his little log book, flight log book, and showed me his entry in the book on February 8th, where he shot down a B-17, and he was shot down and had to bail out. Um, so, you know, he just remembered uh, the, that it was a B-17 that, that he attacked and shot down, and after he parachuted out, he could see some of the guys on my dad's planes coming down in their parachutes as, as well. So he didn't know who he shot down, but uh, he just uh, knew, uh, obviously, uh, remembered that day uh, quite well. Again, Belgium was occupied by the Germans there, so uh, a German patrol picked him up and then put him on a train and sent him back to his, uh, his air base to continue fighting in the war. Now, the, the guys who were captured and ended up in POW camps, how were they treated? There's a big difference between being a POW in Japan and, 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 and Germany. Uh, the, the Japanese were, were ruthless. Uh, the, the Germans weren't. They abided by the Geneva Convention. That's uh, not to say that there weren't U.S. airmen that uh, were, were roughed up or uh, as prisoners of war. But the main pro- problem and issue that uh, the U.S. Uh, POWs in Germany faced was the lack of food and the cold. Uh, yeah, those winters, you know, especially in 43 and 44, were some of the worst so the, the conditions, they were always freezing and uh, you know on the verge of starvation because they hardly got any food. That was their biggest problems. Now, where was your father at the, at the end of the war, VE Day? Um, well, after he got back to his base, they sent him back to the U.S. Uh, and became a B-17 flight instructor. Uh, the, the Air Force had a rule at the time that if you were shot down over occupied territory, and aided by uh, the resistance that you could not go back in combat again because they thought if you were uh, shot down a second time and captured by the Germans and tortured that you'd give up the or they'd give up the identity of the people that helped them the first time they were shot down the only exception to that rule that uh, I'm aware of and I've done quite a bit of research on this is Chuck Yeager who uh, was a fighter pilot and personally met with uh, General Eisenhower and talked him into letting him go back into combat. So my dad was then sent back home, and uh, you know he was a flight instructor until the the, the war ended. Uh, now, did he ever reunite with some of the people in Belgium that helped him? Uh, yes, the people he stayed uh, lengthy periods of time with, he, he stayed in contact uh, with after the war. They corresponded, and as I mentioned earlier, they'd sent him uh, pictures that they had taken, um, exchanged Christmas cards, and then uh, 
subsequent in subsequent years, you know, he did go back over and uh, meet them and uh, saw him again a few times. I was fortunate in 94 when I went over uh, to meet one of his helpers uh, because the rest of them had uh, passed away uh, by then. But lots of the houses and farms where my dad uh, stayed or was hidden in uh, are still there. And uh, that's just amazing to go into these houses or farms and rooms where he was hidden and just be you know, 75 or 70 or 75 years later being in the same spot that my dad was in. And I, th- I think it's worth repeating to the audience, but what would have happened to these people if they found your father in their farm? Oh, they just, they would have been uh, either shot on the spot or uh, interrogated to learn more and then uh, tortured and sent to concentration camps. So they, they were incredibly uh, brave people. I've been to... Uh, Belgium six times uh, for various uh, ceremonies and events and then research. I've gone over there and filmed uh, uh, on two occasions. I've made a short documentary uh, about it as well as the book. And to this day, the Belgian people are still so grateful and so thankful for the Americans coming to uh, their rescue and liberating them from Nazi occupation and Nazi uh, oppression. And they do a great job of educating the younger generations about the, the importance of remembering as well. They're wonderful people. When do they celebrate the liberation of Belgium during World War II? Um, on September 2nd, uh, the day that uh, my dad hooked up with uh, the U.S. armies, uh, that's the day that uh, the U.S. armies, you know, first entered Belgium in the little village of Sundron, uh, and were the first uh, also on that day, September 2nd, uh, was the day that uh, 12 U.S. Uh, soldiers, uh, the first soldiers killed in the liberation of Belgium, uh, died in a, a skirmish with some uh, uh, Nazi uh, Waffen-SS uh, panzers. There's a memorial to, the, to, to them as well, not too far from my dad's memorial. So it's on the, the September 2nd, uh, in and around. They have ceremonies the last several days. Uh, I've gone over for the 50th, 60th, 70th, and 75th, which was last year. And they're wonderful events. Uh, all the townspeople come out, they erect these huge tents and uh, have dances and uh, band concerts. And uh, they, the, every, the local beer chimay just flows and everyone has a great time. And then they have more sober moments at these various memorials where they have ceremonies. And the dignitaries, all the local dignitaries speech, the U.S. military, Belgian military, French military, the U.S. ambassador to Belgium comes down. They're, they're quite wonderful events. Now, let me ask you, said there's a memorial to the Waffen-SS? No. Oh, no, okay. That, I thought that's what you were saying. There was a memorial uh, to the, 12, the first 12 GIs that were killed fighting against the Waffen-SS. Okay. So there was a memorial to the first 12 men that were killed in the little village of Monsu in Brashis. And there's also a little uh, uh, museum there uh, that has lots of uh, artifacts and memorabilia of that event and also involving uh, the story of the Susan Roof. Now, what did your father do after the war? 
Oh, gosh. Uh, he did quite a few different things. Uh, right after the war, he was an air traffic controller for a little while. And then uh, my parents uh, lived in Pasadena, California, where I was born. Uh, he started a restaurant, uh, and he was the uh, owned the restaurant. He was also the chef uh, called Snyder's uh, <laughs> uh, for 10 years. And then he... Uh, Got into various uh, sales endeavors for quite a different things, and then finally uh, he retired from. Um, he was a salesman, and then actually uh, acquired this little company called Acra Stamp Machine Company. And for people that are old enough, uh, can remember redemption stamps <laughs> like the Blue Chip and S and H. These machines, right? Uh, they dial like a telephone, and you put the stamps in there, and then. You know the grocery stores or gas stations would you know dial the the out the the number of stamps that uh, you would get to put in your redemption booklets and uh, to get merchandise. He retired from that. Now let me ask before we wrap up: Is there one story that you think is unforgettable that we should share with the audience now? I can't really say uh, one story. I, I think the. The, the the biggest thing is just you know the uh, the courage and bravery that my dad showed in getting back into the fight, but really I think the 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 main thing to get from the book is to remember the sacrifice of those young guys who fought and died for freedom. Um, there was no other event in history that affected more people than World War II. Sixty million people died. Millions more were wounded. Millions more were left homeless and displaced. It changed the course of the U.S. and the world forever. And we, you know, World War II ended 75 years ago, and it's fading in people's memory, and we cannot let that happen. Uh, these guys, in my opinion, were the greatest generation, and we can never forget their sacrifice to preserve the freedoms that we enjoy today that so many people take for granted because they don't know what took place so long ago. Well said. The name of the book, Shot Down, the author, Steve Snyder. It's the true story of his father, pilot Howard Snyder, and the crew of the B-17, Susan Ruth. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you. I have children. How can I protect them if something happens? Will my to assets be lost if I go into a nursing home? We have property. How will it affect the ones still here? Who will help us take care of Grandma? These questions can be answered by calling 718-238-6500 for a free consultation from Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, providing dedicated, caring, and highly responsive legal services. They're focused on issues that matter to you, protection of your family, preservation of your assets, and respect of your wishes with dignity. That's all I want from a lawyer, making it easier for my children. Call 718-238-6500. Get a free consultation. Connors & Sullivan's clients don't get lost in the cracks. They have dedicated attorneys who know their clients and the issues that matter most to them. Connors & Sullivan's estate planning, elder law, and probate attorneys work closely with every client. Don't leave behind problems for your family. Call 718-238-6500 and get a free consultation today. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, again, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Yes, I'm here. Okay, so, uh, you know, let's not forget the true meaning of Memorial Day Remember our fallen heroes. You know, usually, you know, we used to go with the Catholic War veterans at the Memorial Day Parade in Brooklyn, which is the oldest continuous parade 
in the United States. I know there's some people that argue that, but we're from Brooklyn, so we're going to take the Brooklyn side. We'll go side. with it. We'll go with we'll it. We'll go with it, yeah. But obviously it's not happening this year. Um, and the Boy but, Scouts aren't putting flags on the graves. Yeah, they're not? Okay. No, they're not letting them. The BA, which is, that's a shame. I don't I don't understand that, I'll be honest. Yeah, because that's outside. and It's outside. It's, you know, I think it's good to be outside in the sun, you know, but anyway, they, they made that decision, um, so that's a shame. So there's no decoration this year. Okay, now, you know, each week we start and end the show with David Kincaid singing on hollowed ground, and David Kincaid is a great Civil War historian. He's done a lot of songs, as he sang, he sang a lot of songs about the Civil War era. On hollowed ground is not really that one of it, but it, it does fit, I think, the spirit of Memorial Day. Absolutely. You know, and the headquarters of this station, these stations are, uh, you know, 111 Broadway, which is right next to Trinity Church. And actually the building is owned, my understanding is, by the Trinity Church building. So we kind of are on hallowed ground. And there's a lot of history there. You know, in, in the church cemetery, there's Alexander Hamilton, who I assume his grave has gotten a lot more visitors over the last few years than he had before that. And Robert Fulton, the the inventor of the steamboat. And there, there are other people that were famous at their time that may not be household names today, but they were famous for his time. And On Hollowed Ground, I think, is a great song for our purposes because we deal a lot with history and we're trying to remember the sacrifices of our veterans over the years, and they do lie on hollowed ground. So thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We'll be back next week. God bless you all. Here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. We are gathered. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this song away. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors & Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.